Welcome to the March of History. I'm your host, Trevor Furness, back with you today to deliver another exciting installment in the life of Julius Caesar. Today's episode, episode 21, is called Claudius Unhinged, and it's going to focus more on Cicero and Claudius because, as we'll see in a moment, Caesar is kind of perched outside of Rome, waiting and watching events before he heads off for his governorship. But we're going to try something a little bit different with this episode. Brendan's unable to join us on this one. He has a job interview he has to focus on. And so this one's going to be solo. And I'm thinking I'm going to try a shorter episode style. The last few, we've struggled to keep it under an hour. So this episode, I'm going to try to see if I can get it to be more along the lines of 20 minutes or so. I think it's easier for the audience to digest and listen to in in one go. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the audience likes the hour episodes. If so, feel free to give us any feedback on whether you like longer or shorter. But we're just trying different things out and seeing the audience response and and seeing how it sounds. So this episode today is going to be a little bit shorter. It's going to be just me. But I promise you it's still going to be an action-packed episode because there is a lot of drama going on in Rome to talk about. But before we get to Caesar laying down his consulship, there is one more interesting episode that happens. It's almost an ancient version of the Jeffrey Epstein case today, where there's all sorts of confusion and people being murdered right when they're supposed to testify, and nobody's sure who's pulling the strings of who, and, and there's definitely powerful elite people called up in it, and the people never get a clear answer on it. So... I'm going to tell you about that case today. I'm calling it myself the Vettius plot. I don't know if that's what history knows it as. It's not a hugely important case, but it is a fascinating one. So I think it makes for good storytelling. So where our story picks up, it's still Caesar's consulship. And you'll remember Vettius, or maybe you don't remember his name. He's not that important. Vettius was the guy who, during Caesar's praetorship, had come forward and accused him of being involved in the Catalinarian conspiracy. Caesar had handled him by having him beaten, or at least the crowd beat on him. We don't know if Caesar sicked the crowd on him or if they did it of their own accord, but Caesar certainly had him thrown in jail, and his money, which he had lodged the Senate in order to denounce Caesar, seized. And we didn't hear any more from Vettius after that. Well, now apparently Vettius either missed the limelight or missed actively taking part in conspiracies or missed falsely blaming people for being parts of conspiracies because he gets involved in another of these scandals. And there's many confusing and conflicting accounts of this story. So which one is accurate and which one isn't, it's impossible to know. Even at the time, nobody quite knew. So I'm going to tell you as best I can what happened, and I'll tell you when there's different conflicting sources that say different things happened. Now, this Vettius at this time, during Caesar's consulship, had become friends with Curio. Remember, Curio is the young man that is publicly denouncing the triumvirate in the forum and getting away with it. He's bold, he's flashy, he's accused of having an affair with Mark Antony. Remember they said that Mark Antony wears the dress or squeezes his big muscled body into a dress for Curio's amusement? They even said that Curio's father had to chase Antony out of the house and, and ban him but that Anthony would still sneak in through the roof tiles. So Curio is is a pretty wild guy himself, and he's good friends with 
Clodius or Claudius. So Mark Antony, Claudius, Curio, they're all part of this young, cool set in Rome that is their behavior is wild, their debts are out of control, and people of Caesar and Cicero's generation consider them to be talented, but not at all stable. And Vettius has become friends with this Curio. And at some point during their friendship, Vettius tells Curio that he plans to kill Pompey and possibly Caesar as well. Now, I don't know if I, if I was conspiring to assassinate the consul and somebody very high up in the government like Pompey, I don't think I'd be going around telling people about it. It's very odd that Vettius would do this. In all Vettius' behavior, both in previous episodes and this episode, to me, he just seems like there's something a little bit off about him mentally. Like maybe his decision-making wasn't all there, and he's just never quite sure, or at least I'm not sure what, what his aims are or what he hopes to gain. And so I wonder if he's got you know some mental health issues, Vettius, and it's manifesting itself in getting himself involved in government intrigues, which is certainly not the healthiest way to manifest uh, you know, mental health issues. But Curio hears this, and he goes to his father, who's a prominent senator, and he, and he tells him. And his father tells Pompey, and Pompey tells the Senate. And the Senate calls a meeting and calls Vettius forward to account for his actions, or at least his words. And... Here's where the, the first plot twist in the story comes. Vettius goes before the Senate to testify. And instead of saying to the Senate exactly what he had told Curio, that he was going to kill Pompey and kill Caesar, instead he tells the Senate that Bibulus, Caesar's co-consul Bibulus, he accuses Bibulus of inciting Curio to murder Pompey and possibly Caesar as well. So Curio goes to the Senate and tells them that, hey, this guy Vettius told me that he's going to murder Pompey and Caesar. In a roundabout way, he goes to the Senate because he goes to his father, he goes to Pompey, he goes to the Senate. And they call Vettius before the Senate, and then he just flips he's, you know, flips sides on Curio and then denounces Curio and says that it was Bibulus who was pulling Curio's strings and Curio was going to murder Pompey and Caesar. He also names a number of fellow conspirators, including young Brutus, who is Servilia, Caesar's lover and Cato's half-sister's son. And a number of these guys that Vettius names as co-conspirators would reasonably have a motive to want to kill at least Pompey, because Brutus and at least one other guy who's named Pompey had executed their fathers during the Civil War. So it's not entirely unrealistic that these guys could be plotting to kill Pompey. But everyone in the Senate considers the source, Vettius. This guy is a notoriously unreliable source, and he switches his story all the time. And here he is already switching his story. He told one thing to Curio, and then Curio has him come before the Senate and then just throws Curio under the bus. So the biggest issues they see with his, his testimony is that one, Bibulus, who supposedly is pulling all the strings on this, had warned Pompey of threats of assassination earlier that year. So in Pompey's books, hey, Bibulus isn't going to warn me of assassins earlier in the year and then try to assassinate me later in the year. That seems unlikely. Bibulus has many flaws, but he's not an assassin of, of Pompey anyway. 
So Pompey's not really buying that. But something in the backdrop of all this that I should mention is Pompey was very brave on the battlefield. He was an excellent soldier, but he had this long-standing phobia of assassinations, terrified of assassins. So all of this conspiracy happening is just feeding right into Pompey's fear of, of assassins. And the idea that it could have been Bibulus pulling the strings, I'm, I'm sure, didn't make Pompey feel good, even though Pompey kind of sees through this and, and thinks that, hey, I don't think Bibulus would have tried to do that considering that he warned me of assassins earlier in the year. And Curio, on his part, defends himself quite well in the Senate, and nobody believes Vettius' story. And during this time, while all this is happening, Cicero actually thinks that Caesar's behind all this. That Caesar has put Vettius up to saying that Bibulus is pulling the strings and trying to assassinate Pompey. And the reason why this would benefit Caesar is that it would neutralize Curio if he was tied up in some scandal where he tried to assassinate somebody high up like Pompey. And now it, he becomes more of a sketchy character. And, and do people listen to him in the forum when he denounces the triumvirate anymore? Maybe not. So it could be an attempt to neutralize Curio. It would also make Bibulus look very bad and look like he's trying to assassinate Pompey. And most importantly of all, it would draw Pompey onto the side of the triumvirate even more so. It would solidify his position because Pompey, as I said in past episodes, is a notorious turncoat. He will flip sides on people like no tomorrow. So it could have been that Caesar did all this to make it seem like, hey, the Optimates are trying to assassinate you. If you don't stick closely to Crassus and myself, then they might succeed. So you, know, you should stay close to us in this alliance and work with us. But all of this is just guesswork. This is just Cicero speculating on conspiracies. There's no proof of any of this. What's more is Brutus's name was on the list of people that Vettius put forward. There's no way Caesar would want Brutus's name on there. He treated Brutus like a son. The greatest love of his life, Servilia, is Brutus's mother. Why would Caesar put Vettius up to putting Brutus's name on a list like this, right? So it's possible that Caesar did put him up to this and that Vettius was just an unreliable, unstable guy that just threw a bunch of names onto his list and, and twisted the story at the last moment. That's certainly possible. But we can't imagine that Caesar wanted Brutus's name to be brought up in all this. And at some point in this whole conspiracy, whether it's before the trial or after the trial, or this is not a trial at this point, but the hearing with the Senate, whether it's before or after, we're not really sure, but Vettius is discovered with a concealed dagger in the forum. So in a city like Rome, where there are no weapons allowed, Vettius is carrying a concealed dagger. How he gets caught, none of the sources say. One of the sources actually says that he just appears in the forum one day with a drawn dagger, not even concealed. He's just got it drawn out in the open, which I'm sure drew a lot of eyes in a city like Rome. So there's enough going on here, enough weird stuff going on here with Vettius that there, there's something to this. Nobody believes what Vettius is saying, but he's certainly behaving erratically. So the Senate has Vettius arrested and, and thrown into the temporary Roman prison that they hold people in before they go to trial. And the next day after this, Caesar summons Vettius to a meeting of the people on the rostra. And now this is where plot twist number two comes in. Now Vettius, Caesar gets him before the people to tell his story, 
and Vettius omits Brutus's name and instead adds Lucullus, who's one of the arch optimates, the guy that Caesar made cry, and a number of other people's names. And he leaves out Brutus's name. And Cicero said that he felt that Caesar had put pressure on Vettius the previous night while he sat in jail basically had somebody go to him or went to himself and said, hey, you're going to stop saying Brutus's name and you're going to say these other names. Because it certainly seems that somebody got to Vettius. He was saying one set of names the day before. One night in jail goes by. Caesar summons him in the morning and he's listing off a different set of names. That's pretty sketchy, right? So did Caesar get to him or did he just twist or did he just decide on his own to switch the story? It's tough to know. And I think the way Cicero actually puts it in his letter is that he felt that there had been a nighttime plea on Brutus's behalf. In other words, that Servilia had gone to Caesar's house to sleep with Caesar to get Caesar to get Brutus's name removed from this whole scandal. The Romans loved some good gossip. And now Vettius goes back to jail and the Senate sets a date for him to be put on trial. And this is where the third plot twist in this whole conspiracy happens. And the next morning... Vettius is found dead in his cell before the trial can begin and before he can testify. Tell me this is not like the Jeffrey Epstein case. And Plutarch says that, yes, it's ruled a suicide at the time, but that there were marks of strangulation on his neck, on Vettius's neck. And Suetonius says that Caesar was behind the whole thing and that Caesar had Vettius poisoned. Now, I don't know if I put a lot of stock in that because Suetonius tends to be against Caesar in most any of these accounts. I'm not sure why. I should look into that sometime. But So Suetonius says that Caesar is behind it and it essentially found Vettius to be an unreliable agent and had him poisoned. And like I said, Caesar's motives would have been that he wanted to draw Pompey closer to the triumvirate as an ally and sideline Curio. So there's certainly some motive here. And it could have been that Caesar tried to use Vettius, gave him a list of names, gave him a story to talk about to the Senate, and Vettius got up there and just completely switched things up and just threw a curveball to everybody. And Caesar you know, visited him the night before in the jail or had a proxy visit him and said, hey, remember the story. Here's what you're going to say. And the next day, maybe Vettius still got it somewhat wrong. And then Caesar said, I thought I could use this guy. I thought he'd be a tool for my political aims. He, this is not working out. And at some point during this trial, he's going to blurt out that I've been behind all of this and I can't have that. And therefore, let's just have him killed. It's possible. Caesar is a, known to be a merciful guy, known to want to help the people. But as we've seen a few times in the past, he can be extremely ruthless when he wants to be. Like having all the pirates crucified and, and their throats slit beforehand. And as we're going to see when he gets to Gaul... He can be extremely ruthless if somebody stands in the way of his ambitions or is between him and glory. So all this is very possible, but Caesar doesn't tend to be so ruthless when it comes to fellow Romans. Though Vettius is a guy that had already falsely accused Caesar once, and maybe Caesar tried to use him and then just got tired of it, who knows? Or maybe this was all Vettius, because later on Cicero would say, maybe a few years later, that he felt that Caesar had nothing to do with it and that it was just Vettius of his own accord acting. But that's all we know about this case. We don't know who exactly for sure put Vettius up to this, 
because he dies beforehand and we never get any additional information. And it just reminds me of the Jeffrey Epstein case because, okay, there's no child pedophile rings going on, but he dies in prison like Epstein. And we never, history never finds out what truly happened and who was truly pulling the strings because of this. And in the Epstein case, that may very well be the way it goes down in history. That is this bizarre incident that nobody ever really got to the bottom of. Now, moving on from that case, 59 BC finally ends. That means Caesar's consulship is finally over. Woohoo, right? We spent a number of episodes on it, but it's been an eventful year. Poop was dumped on Bibulus's head. He hasn't come out of his house. Caesar passed all his legislation. Uh, it's been a huge success for the triumvirate, although they've made many enemies. And they achieved everything they could have hoped for, but it's come at a very high cost. And many senators that were previously neutral towards Caesar are now very hostile towards him. And it's funny, it seems that Caesar took the brunt of the hostility in all of this. Because Crassus and Pompey were equally as much part of the triumvirate. But Crassus seemed to avoid all criticism as he did much of his career. Something about him made people worry of, of criticizing him and, and didn't want to have anything to do with that. Pompey got criticism as well, but not quite as much as Caesar. It seems that for whatever reason, whether it's because Caesar's personality, you know, whether he his, his flamboyant style rubbed it in people's faces, or whether because he was the actual man on the front lines, the consul pushing all this legislation through, but people seem to have blamed Caesar for this, specifically senators did. And so a lot of them, when he leaves Rome, are going to hate him, who previously maybe didn't really care one way or the other for him, or about him, that is. And Caesar now takes up his command of his three provinces, though he doesn't go to the provinces right away. He's not allowed to be in Rome since he took up command and he's a general in the field, but he can sit outside Rome and not go to his provinces yet. And so for a number of months, which is very unusual for Caesar, he just sits there and lingers just outside of Rome. And to me, it just seems like he's almost like this silent spider sitting on a web, pulling the strings of politics, getting all the actors to do what he wants. And the reason why he's doing this is that he is fearful that the optimates would try to undo all of the laws that he's passed and undo everything in his consulship the second he leaves Rome. And he wanted to stay around to supervise the defense, personally, of these laws. And it doesn't take long for the optimates to strike. And very soon after Caesar steps down from the consulship, two praetors demand an inquiry into the conduct of his year in office. And Caesar refers the matter to the Senate, and the Senate refuses to discuss it. So for now, that one's put on hold. So Caesar's able to get away from that. But the optimates aren't going to stop there. And next, a tribune attempts to arraign Caesar, but Caesar pleads absence on important business of the state, meaning that he's governor of three provinces, and the trial is put off. So the optimists saw that it wasn't going to work right away, bringing him to trial, as at least not when he's governor of provinces, because he has a lot of immunity. And so they decide, let's wait and bide our time and attack him in other ways in the meantime. Now, also happening in Rome at this time, there is a big beef going on between Claudius and Cicero, or now Clodius and Cicero. You remember what earned Cicero Clodius's undying hatred to begin with was when Caesar testified against him, and in the case of 
Clodius dressing up like a woman and sneaking into the Bonadilla festival and just blowing up his alibi. And so Clodius has been looking for a way to get revenge on Cicero ever since. And Caesar finally delivered that opportunity to him during his consulship by having or by allowing Clodius to be adopted by a 20-year-old plebeian, therefore making Clodius a plebeian and a man who can now run for the tribuneship. And just a side note, to show how tied up these guys are, not only are they neighbors, but Clodius was one of Cicero's bodyguards during the Catiline Conspiracy. A bunch of young senators gathered together to be bodyguards for Cicero when he heard that there was going to be assassination attempts, and Clodius was one of them. (laughs) And since that trial, Cicero has only made matters worse by making tons of jokes about Clodius and just rubbing salt in the wound. Cicero had a sharp tongue but never knew when to keep quiet. And I have a quote now from Anthony Everett's book Cicero that shows a little bit of the flavor of those jokes and these are the ones that made it to the history books. So you imagine there's a lot more going on and a lot more things said that aren't recorded. But he says, quote, Clodius was acquitted, meaning acquitted in the case where he's accused of dressing up as a woman and sneaking into this festival, the all-female festival of Bonadilla. So I go back, continue. Quote, Clodius was acquitted, but he was a vindictive man and made up his mind to punish Cicero for having testified against him. For a while, though, nothing happened, and Cicero could not help amusing himself at his expense. He liked to call him Pretty Boy, making a play on his cognomen Pulcher, the Latin word for beautiful. There were a number of barb exchanges at Senate meetings and elsewhere over the next year or so. Quote, you bought a mansion, end quote, Claudius sneered. Quote, one might think he was saying I had bought a jury, end quote, Cicero reposited. On another occasion, the two men happened to be taking a candidate for political office down to the forum together and entered into a conversation. Clodius asked if Cicero was in the habit of giving Sicilians, who were his clientela, seats at gladiatorial shows. Cicero said he was not. Quote, ah, replied Clodius, but I'm a new patron of theirs, and I'm going to institute the practice. But my sister, with all that free space at her disposal as an ex-consul's wife, only gives me one wretched foot. Unable to resist referring to the gossip about their relationship, Cicero remarked, quote, Oh, don't grumble about one foot in your sister's case. You can always hoist the other, end quote. And of course, with those jokes, or the last one, what Cicero is saying is that Clodius was always accused and rumored to be having incestuous relationships with his three sisters, Even at least one, maybe even two of their husbands, of the sister's husbands, even testified in court that it was true. So, you know, there's no smoke or there's not fire, right? But these kind of jabs to a person who's just obsessed with revenge, like Clodius, are obviously not going to help matters. And Clodius is probably going to get back at Cicero no matter what for testifying against him. But just rubbing salt in the wound for a few years like that you know, th- this man is a champion, uh, as I think it was Tom Holland says, uh, he excelled at nursing vendettas. And sure enough, Clodius makes no secret about the fact that he's going to get back at Cicero. And Cicero had always been somewhat close to Pompey, and Pompey assures Cicero during this time that he could protect him from Clodius and that he has nothing to worry about. But then Clodius, of course, is let off his leash. And by who? By Caesar and by Pompey. Pompey's one of the guys that lets him off his leash to go attack Cicero. 
So not exactly protecting Cicero in that case. And Clodius then runs for the tribuneship and actually wins in December of Caesar's consulship. And after he wins and after he becomes a plebeian, Clodius floats the idea for a while of flipping sides altogether and attacking Caesar and Caesar's consulship and trying to undo everything Caesar got done during his consulship, even though if he destroys the legitimacy of Caesar's consulship, then that destroys the legitimacy of the adoption Caesar did to make Clodius a plebeian that allowed him to run for the tribuneship. So here Clodius, proving every bit as wacky as he always is, is sawing you know the very branch of the tree that he's sitting on. But he's Clodius, so he keeps floating the idea that he's going to attack Caesar and his consulship. And if you didn't guess already, you know, before I just told you that, as you can see, once Caesar let the mad dog off the leash, meaning Clodius, Caesar lost all control of this man. There's no controlling him. His little control over him was like, hey, you're not going to be a plebeian. And once he let him be a plebeian, now he's lost all control. And he could just as easily turn around and bite Caesar as go after Caesar's enemies. And Clodius then goes back and forth, flirting with both sides, flirting with the optimates, flirting with the populares, which side wants me, which side is going to offer me more. And Cicero dances back and forth, despising Clodius and cheering for him, depending on the most recent rumor. And Cicero even writes to a friend, quote, Publius is our only hope, so yes, let him become tribune. Because he thought that Claudius was just crazy enough to attack the triumvirate and maybe succeed in taking them down a peg or two. But then, of course, a new rumor would come out the next day that Clodius was going to attack Cicero and the Optimates, and Cicero would freak out. And finally, Clodius decides that he's going to work for the triumvirate. It's probably not so clear to everybody at the time that this happened, but he does make this decision. And in January, as Caesar watches from outside of Rome, Clodius passes a number of important pieces of legislation. He creates a free grain dole for the urban poor. I've talked about the grain dole a lot in the past, but apparently before this moment, it was subsidized grain. It was very cheap, but it wasn't free. Clodius actually makes it free. Of course, the people love this. He also reinstates the collegia, or the guilds. And I'm going to explain in a minute why he does this, because this is very important. And he also outlaws using unfavorable omens to block government proceedings. Uh, I wonder who that's aimed at. That's aimed at Bibulus, of course, Caesar's enemy and consular colleague. So Clodius is clearly planting himself on the side of Caesar by going after Bibulus like this. And he proposes a law restricting the censors from kicking people out of the Senate, probably so that he doesn't get kicked out of the Senate with the things that he's about to do. But all of these, outside of the last one about the censors, all these laws appeal to the poor citizens in Rome. And Clodius knew that a normal career path after getting caught dressed as a woman in an all-female festival and committing that sacrilege, a normal career path would never be open to him. And he's still an ambitious guy, though. So he decides to become a demagogue of the highest order and just, I'm going to go for power no matter what. And if it's not a traditional path, I'm a Clodius. Who cares? And Tom Holland says in his book, Rubicon, quote, The poor, like every other class of Roman, were easily dazzled by snob appeal, and Clodius had both star quality and the popular touch to excess. A man capable of provoking a mutiny in defense of his wounded honor was clearly a demagogue of genius, end quote. Now these guilds or these collegia that Clodius had brought back into fashion or, or back into being legal... They were associations based on the region, the city, or the trade that you were involved in. 
and they were focused on the crossroads of the city. And the crossroads in Rome were seen as sacred areas. And it was the collegia or the guild's duty to, to care for these crossroads and to make them you know, nice for the gods and to sacrifice the gods and to keep the neighborhood safe because these crossroads would have certain gods and those gods would protect the neighborhood. So this was an important role. And they would also hold giant festivals each year. And all these things I just mentioned, it sounds good. So why were they banned a few decades before this? They did do all the things I just listed, but they were mostly front organizations for mafia-style crime syndicates among the urban poor. And in in 64 BC, the Senate had enough of them and banned them altogether because they felt that their power was competing with the Senate and they didn't like a rival shadow government going on. And so this begs the question, why does Clodius want them back? Because one, it's popular with the people. The people love these guilds and they want them back. And more importantly, it's a way for him to organize his supporters into aggressive gangs that are willing to break the law on his behalf. Because now all the crossroads, all the guilds, they all owe Clodius because he's the one that brought them back into into Rome. So now he has his own private army of people who are clearly perfectly fine with breaking the law. And as Tom Holland says in Rubicon, quote, his, meaning Clodius's plan was simple, seduce the mob and seize control of the streets, end quote. And Tom Holland goes on to say later, quote, this was a potentially massive innovation. Indeed, so massive an innovation was it that the Senate entirely failed to recognize it as such. The idea that a nobleman and the poor might have intimate bonds of obligation was entirely alien to the Roman mind, and no one could even conceive what the consequences might be. As a result, Clodius found it easy to force through the measure. He dealt with what limited opposition there was contemptuously by twisting arms and greasing palms. Even Cicero was bought off. Using Atticus, who is Cicero's friend, using Atticus as a go-between, Clodius promised not to prosecute him over the executions of the conspirators, and Cicero, after much havering, havering, (laughs) agreed in return not to attack his enemy's bill. In early January 58, the legislation was passed. End quote. Sorry for the mispronunciation of of havering or havering. It's, It's not a word I've seen before. And what happens after this law is passed is, is the exact same day that the laws pass, Clodius and his new tradesmen or new gang members occupy the steps to the temple of Castor and Pollux. That's the same temple where Caesar dumped the bucket of poop on Bibulus's head. It's right in the forum. It's where they would hold big meetings of crowds. It allowed for a lot more people. And his tradesmen, that's putting it nicely, really, his gangs, occupy these, these, this temple steps the same day that this bill is passed. And they begin to cheer Clodius in, in the forum and heckle his opponents anytime they walk by. So pretty obnoxious behavior. Not violent, but pretty obnoxious. But soon they destroy the temple steps entirely. And they leave it as a fortress. Basically nobody can get up unless they throw presumably some kind of ladder down for people to get up. And now this is like a military fortress in the center of Rome for Clodius and his gangs. How he's getting away with this, I don't know. It's, it's wild. Only he could pull this off. And he even reorganizes the collegia or the guilds, and he reorganizes them to now be structured in a paramilitary fashion so that he can organize his supporters to commit violent acts at a second's notice. And of course, if you're Cicero, yes, you have this promise from Clodius that he's not going to go after him because Cicero allowed him to pass this law. But can you really trust this guy? 
Is he really going to hold to his word? Or does his revenge mean far more to him than any promises he made to Cicero? So that's where we're going to end today. Like I said, it's a bit of a shorter episode today. It went longer than I expected still, but we're going to try a new format with shorter episodes. It should make it a little bit easier for people to listen to an entire episode in one sitting, and hopefully the audience enjoys that. If you prefer the long episodes, just let us know. You know send us an email, message us on social media, and we are happy to change back, but we're just trying different things out and seeing what works. And as for the social media... The Instagram, as always, is at the March of History. The Twitter's at March underscore History. The email is themarchofhistory at gmail.com. Especially follow the Instagram because all my travels through Spain, when I'm seeing all this wonderful history, uh, whether it's Moorish architecture or old Christian cathedrals or old Roman temples in Cordoba, I'm posting it all on the Instagram. So if you're into history, if you're into travel, if you're into seeing all these sites, then it's a great format to, or it's a great visual format to add to the the podcast audio. And please feel free to share this podcast with anybody that you know enjoys history podcasts. And please subscribe and and give us a rating in the podcast store. We would love it if it's five stars. It would it would mean a lot to us. It only takes a few seconds of your time, but it, it definitely helps the podcast a lot. And that is all. Until next time on the March of History. <laughs>